Hi, and welcome to Casualties of History. On this, our final episode, final chapter, chapter 16, Class Consciousness. This is what we've all been waiting for. <laughs> I love, I do love that, like, for all that this book is, like, an unorthodox, uh, you know, class formation and development of the working class doesn't happen according to your formula, man. It, like, takes its own time. It follows its own rhythm. But, like, it, at the end, it's still, like, class consciousness. We're there. We're ready. It happens. <laughs> <laughs> right. For everyone who's listened to this many episodes and is listening to this, thank you for listening to all of this show. Uh, it's been extremely fun and ridiculous that we did an entire podcast about this book. Um, so thank you for listening along. And if you read along, thank you especially for reading along. Uh, this has been a fun experiment. And if you contributed to the Slack. And for contributing to the Slack, if you contributed to the Slack. You know, heroic work building our own <laughs> radical culture. Exactly. Uh, I would like to say when I realized uh, that we were finally coming to the end of this book, I had really hoped when we started this, you know, I'd sort of thought, this is a fun pandemic project. And I sort of thought to myself, oh, I'm going to get annoyed with this because the pandemic's going to end and I'm still going to be doing this. And uh, joke's on me because this pandemic hasn't ended at all in the United States. Uh, nothing has changed since we started doing this months ago. Um, I am still locked in my room, basically. Uh, and the actually, the numbers are basically worse than ever in this country. So uh, didn't expect it to last that long. Yeah, the, uh, you know, I, I'm sure this has happened to you, Alex, that people have said to me, oh, well, like, you should do another book. What book are you going to do next? Which I don't want to do. I mean, this was fun, but like one was enough. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was a big book. And I have other books I want to read that no one else cares about, you know? And um, Yeah, right. But, uh, you know, for a while, getting those questions like, you know, two months ago, I mean, we've been doing this for... How many months now? Six months almost? I don't five know. months? Oh, no, not six five months. Five months. No, four Maybe and a half. five months. Maybe yeah. four. Okay. Um, you sound like you know. No, I don't whatever. know. I'm just... um, <laughs> but, you know, for a couple of months now, as the, you know, we've made progress, people have started asking this to me. Uh, and my intention all along has been no. And I had this great excuse of like, no, the pandemic's going to end. You know, is this a pandemic project that was so nice? What was so nice about it? It created this kind of social life when we couldn't mm -hmm. have one you know it used the time productively but now that we're just settling in for like the long haul it really maybe <laughs> now you're well no i don't want to do it again i just don't have the excuse anymore <laughs> <laughs> right exactly i mean that's the thing is it's starting to look like we could have like two we could go through two more of this we could do like capital and black reconstruction and the pandemic would still be going on yeah okay that's my next big one that I'm going to do after this is I'm going to go through capital. Yeah, well, that at least is a ton of resources for. I mean, like, I think it'd be fun to have a have a group in some way or it's. Yeah. But, uh, you know, there's all the different things you can listen to and read along and so on. 
Yeah, thank God. There's no need for uh, any new capital. Yeah, but don't do uh, volumes two and three. I mean, whatever, you can. But, like, <laughs> my, my <laughs> advice, not really necessary unless you're really... Really? Well, I mean, if you're trying to do your own, like, study of political economy, I think they're useful in some way. Um, I've read most of one, but it was a long time ago. But I definitely haven't read two or three. No, I mean, read them. Well, who am I to say don't read capital? But, like, <laughs> uh, I don't know. Obviously, I just think, like... Um, most of most of what you really need is in one. Well, I was just putting you on the spot because there's no chance I'm reading two and three. I have too much other things to do in my life. But uh, I read them all in a group, and I think it's very difficult to read it not in a group or in with some yeah. kind. I mean, people do it obviously with some kind of um, you know support system around you. There's a great article by um, one of my grad school advisors, Michael Denning, about like actually the tradition of the capital reading group which is mm. which is almost as old as capital right of um, course. and you know so it's been an unreadable book as long for as a very as, long for time for a very long yeah. time but I, I think there's something very cool about that that there's like such a deep tradition on the left of getting together to read this particular book as well as getting yeah. together to read in general i tentatively do have plans to read it with at least one other friend so uh yeah i wasn't planning on doing it by myself you should so, li- live tweet the whole thing. I think that's, that's yeah, right. I mean, the downside of that is, of course, then I am once again tethered to a schedule not of my making, uh, which I resent. <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> probably for the best. I'll probably give it up if I don't do it with people. So, anyway, anyway. So all of which is uh, <laughs> prelude to say that we have congratulations. We are finishing the book. Um, so. What do you want to say about this chapter? Should we just launch right into it? Or what do you think? Yeah, I mean, the you know, there's this kind of striking thing about the chapter that a huge amount of it is sort of profiles of these individual journalists, um, which is not what you would necessarily expect in a chapter called Class Consciousness coming at the end of a book like that. I mean, in part, it's a continuation, right, of this sort of thing he's been talking about for the past couple chapters where he's saying, you know, in, in lieu of a as political organization is repressed, what comes out instead are these sort of figureheads that don't necessarily represent an organized public per se, but sort of become in, you know, when that is lacking, they become these sort of stand-ins for different currents of this repressed or suppressed tradition um, and undercurrent that's within the broader sort of working class. Yeah, there's this line on page 720 that I thought was... um... I don't know, instructive in some way. Uh, Thompson writes, There is perhaps no country in the world in which the contest for the rights of the press was so sharp, so emphatically victorious, and so peculiarly identified with the cause of the artisans and laborers. If Peterloo established, by a paradox of feeling, the right of public demonstration, the rights of a, quote, free press were won in a campaign extending over 15 or more years, which has no comparison for its pig-headed, bloody-minded, and indomitable audacity. And it does seem like, you know, like when when Thompson uh, uses the phrase class consciousness at the head of this chapter, um, you know, we obviously that's a phrase that we use generically in a lot of different ways. Um, but, it, but you know, it's sort of specific meaning, right? It's not just like a feeling of class, but it's the sense that a class has that it is a class, its ability to articulate that explicitly. Um, it's meant for the ability of its members to articulate that explicitly and to you know represent it back to themselves and to their antagonists. And 
it does really seem like, I mean, that can happen in many different ways and through many different kinds of mediums, but it does seem like the emphasis on the press here is what Thompson is saying is class consciousness occurs through print, basically. And that's why struggle over freedom of the press is so important. Right. I mean, he's sort of, there are points, I'm sure we can find these quotes as we go through the chapter, but there are sort of points where he says they're articulating, it's not one reading public, but different publics that are sort of overlapping uh, in this way where um, on one level, on one side, it's sort of a gambit that, you know, some of these writers like Cobbett and stuff just sort of think that if you just produce, if you just lay out reason, you can sort of affect change. And Thompson is, you know, on one level saying, of course, that's not quite how it works. But I think at one point he says this sort of theory of multiplication does have the effect that is intended in that it starts leading towards mass demonstrations on the basis of these writings being disseminated. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, I mean, now living in a moment when there's a proliferation of like little left wing publications, I feel like I every, you know, six months a new one is founded and someone quotes uh, who said it? Is it Irving Howe who said it? Or someone else? The famous line, like, uh, when socialists have nothing else to do, they found a magazine. Mm, yeah, I can't Someone like who that. Said that, yeah. Uh, I'm also yeah. not getting it exactly right, but it's in that, it's in that vein. <laughs> sure. Um, if you, you hear that quoted all the time. Um, and it's something that I've kind of accepted at face value, right? That, like, uh, you know, every time I hear about some new, pro- like, print project, I'm like, I mean, I guess better than not, but like, you know, isn't there something better we could be doing and this kind of thing? Right, I, I sure. still sort of think that in certain ways. However, um, it does seem to me like, I don't know, this chapter makes a kind of compelling case for like the value of, uh, you know, all different kinds of like print voices and even how they kind of work in different registers. I mean, on the next page on 721, there's this like very funny like the account of the trials of William Hone uh, in 1817, some of the most hilarious legal proceedings on record, Thompson says. Hone, a former book, uh, a poor bookseller and former member of the LCS, was indicted for publishing blasphemous libels in the form of parodies upon the catechism, litany, and creed. Hone, in fact, was only a particularly witty exponent of a form of political squib long established among the news vendors and patterers and practiced in more sophisticated form by men of all parties from Wilkes to the writers in the anti-Jacobin. Hone, indeed, had not thought his parodies worth risking liberty for. When the repression of February 1817 commenced, he had sought to withdraw them, and it was Carlyle, by republishing them, who had forced the government's hand. Here is a sample. I starred this, because I, 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 I lolled at it. <laughs> uh, Our Lord, who art in the treasury, whatsoever be thy name, thy power be prolonged, thy will be done throughout the empire, as it is in each session. Give us our usual sops, and forgive us our occasional absences on divisions, as we promise not to forgive those that divide against thee. Turn us not out of our places, but keep us in the House of Commons, the land of pensions and plenty, and deliver us from the people. Amen. Uh, Hone was held in prison in poor health from May until December, because he was unable to find 1,000 pounds bail. He had aroused the particular and personal fury of members of the cabinet to whom he had attached names that were never forgotten. Old bags for Lord Chancellor Eldon. Derry Down Triangle for Castlery. I don't even know what that's supposed to mean. Yeah, funny. I have no idea. And, <laughs> and The Doctor for Sidmouth. So anyway, um, you know, I mean, just like, I mean, that people always say that, you know, humor is one of the things that signifies the, like, 
that has the most cultural difference, right? It's hardest to understand humor across language and time mm-hmm. and this kind of thing. Um, and I feel like here, I, I felt like I could suddenly recognize, like, even though I didn't get all the jokes, I could suddenly recognize, like, what's funny about this and what the kind of thing this guy is doing mm-hmm. in a way that I feel like I can recognize in our own world today, like, people who do this kind of thing. Right. So it made me, I don't know, it made me feel, like, positively about uh, about about print culture. So it's interesting because as a curmudgeonly media skeptic about the importance of media or lack thereof you work at a magazine i work at a hundred something old year old institution. yeah but i've i've always <laughs> said it's very funny that i work at a magazine because i have the least uh sort of credence in media i think it's just like mostly doesn't matter or whatever you know that's obviously simplistic whatever it's not like there's ideas and then there's material there's you know whatever i obviously don't mean that but that said i'm still sort of skeptical of overinvestment in the media world that I think the U.S. left suffers from immensely because it's in America, mediafied everything, sure. But so it's interesting because to me, I'm like, I understand the value of this stuff in this era because this is still a time when organization is massively either repressed or, you know, just incredibly difficult to come by and to, to actually sustain. And so this becomes a sort of placeholder. In the same way, to be honest, I mean, it's interesting uh, like the way we thought of Jacobin's reading groups before DSA sort of emerged as this broad group was as just a holding ground when there wasn't a, any sort of go-to organization as a place where unaffiliated sort of radicals could like start existing in groups and debating ideas and sort of getting a foot into the left. And then those completely dissipated. And sometimes people ask what happened to the Jacobin reading groups and we say, well, like now there's a mass movement of the left. So like people started organizing and we didn't need them anymore. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. yeah. To some, that's like a simplified version of the story. But so to me, I'm sort of like, does, I don't know that this necessarily applies in the same way when you actually do have organization, there are things you can do uh, in a real way, whether it's, you can just transpose the lessons from this era onto print culture today. I think sometimes you are just forming a print magazine for no reason. I'm sure you're right. Uh, however, on the next page, 722, uh, in the account of uh, uh, Hohn's trial, uh, well, first of all, the chief, Lord Chief Justice is old, ill, and testy, and uh, he's constantly interrupting, but Hone is very unruffled and re- giving unruffled reproofs on his conduct to the Lord, Lord Chief Justice and the readings of the parodies from the different sources and the threats by the sheriff to, quote, arrest the first man I see laugh. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good line. And, you know, Hone is there making fun of all this, it seems like, from the, you know, yeah. from the defendant's box or whatever. Um, and Thompson says in the beginning of the next paragraph, persecution cannot easily stand up in the face of ridicule. That's obviously not true as a general principle. I mean, I think that <laughs> right. to your point, um, yeah. persecution very often stands up somewhat in the face of ridicule. But um, I don't know. I do feel like, especially in the last few months, I keep thinking about, I mean, this is taking us a little bit of field from the book, but uh, I keep thinking about, it's very difficult, obviously, to anticipate what the political consequences of the pandemic and the whole general social crisis will be. But it does feel like you can feel trust and authority disintegrating so rapidly and like mm-hmm. so many different, you know, in the government, most of all, obviously, but like, um, you know, I mean, students with their schools, uh, you know, primary, secondary, higher ed, all of them and parents also like trying to kind of fuck them over and make them sick for their own reasons 
uh, or their teachers, you know, I mean, with employers who are making people come back to work or deceiving them about right. the safety of work. I just feel like we are in like a general crisis of like legitimate authority, which is great. And um, I mean, in consequence of a horrible thing, but it's great. And I do think some of that does depend on people like sharing memes and stuff. If you say so, I'm willing to be convinced on this. I just, you know, people also said in 2016, like, oh, Trump is a clown and uh, ridiculed him all day. And yet yeah. and still do. And yet he just rolls on. Yeah, so, I mean, you're right, I, obviously. It's, it's, the, it's the classic joke of we've really got him this time. And then he wiggles out of it. <laughs> yeah. And it doesn't affect anything at all yeah. that he's yeah, like, you're right. you know. <laughs> Sorry, I want to be wrong, Gabe. I want you to convince me to. I mean, obviously, it's hard to operate and ex- intervene in the world when you're feeling really pessimistic about the odds of making a difference. So, you know, I too would like memes to be powerful because I know how to make one. <laughs> so, whereas I can't occupy a factory myself. So, I mean, they're not powerful, obviously, but I do think that yeah. they. They and the whole larger world of which they are a part, and of which you are a part, and to the lesser degree sure. I am a part, are not without effects. You know, I just feel like they're like, sure. uh, I, I, you know, I, I'm not sure I always would have said this, but right now I feel like, uh, especially because people can't do anything but consume right. symbols over the internet of different kinds. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's like it's the only form of social interaction a lot of people have. Um, mm-hmm. That I I I read Hone and I was like, yeah, this guy rolls. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, so he's covering the 1820s and then the early 1830s, and he opens the chapter just saying the the 1820s seems strangely quiet, a mildly prosperous plateau of social peace, and then he quotes someone who says. People fancy that when all's quiet, that all's stagnating. Propagandism is going for all that. It's when all's quiet that the seeds are growing. Republicans and socialists are pressing their doctrines. So that's sort of the lead quote, I think, for the chapter. If he's going to talk now about these, you know, sort of specific cases of these individuals in their journals that they're sort of propagandizing on. But I think it's interesting he sort of talks about in this chapter how, you know, again, the the word he uses is multiplication, the sort of like, broad spreading of these ideas that all of a sudden now you find by the early to mid 1830s that every little town when there's an opportunity arises there people sort of come out of the woodwork that are have held to these ideas and have been passing around these journals and sort of have become um, militants or at least radicals in this uh, sense of the tradition he's been talking about throughout the whole book. He's, he ends this second paragraph of that first page by saying, at the end of the decade when there's came the climactic contest between old corruption and reform, it is possible to speak in a new way of the working people's consciousness of their interests and of their predicament as a class. And he's sort of emphasized as a class. Um, so we get the class consciousness we've been working towards. Yeah, I also think um, he's really communicating something here about like mid 20th century socialist cultural politics also i mean he's this is a moment where you really see him telegraphing the influence of a kind of classic book by richard hoggart called the uses of literacy about like the importance and meanings of literacy in british working class culture and uh you know not to say that what thompson is saying about the 1820s is not right or untrue or something um 
but I think you know there are these moments throughout the book where he is finding in some way an antecedent or an echo or something um, of something about the middle of the 20th century and I feel like that's a really clear thing he's doing here uh, and the, you know I think what was distinctive about the uses of literacy and the way it kind of laid the groundwork for for this book for a lot of you know I mean Hoggart was the first director of the center that Stuart Hall then ran so it was kind of the whole project of cultural studies um, was how it found a kind of world of working class meaning in like really everyday practices I mean Hoggart was doing things I think if I remember right like uh, reading library like catalog checkout records you know to understand like what were reading habits and this kind of thing and to understand like what were what were people trying to learn about the world through through reading you know um and to take that really seriously as a kind of dimension of working class agency and self-creation um so i feel like thompson is also kind of paying some credit to that mm -hmm. i mean yeah at the first the first few pages of this chapter are sort of this um somewhat dry sort of looking at like how many what percentage of people could read and to what extent were they literate and how were these magazines and journals passed around at the time you know that their subscription numbers don't quite convey the readership because it was sort of shared amongst members of a community and and that reading was this sort of communal activity because of course if if plenty of people couldn't read then it was sort of that pieces were read aloud at either the bar or the club or something like that yeah it's interesting you know i feel like uh you know especially in an age when we take for granted universal literacy um the significance of the question for a huge period of relatively recent history you know was like it was quite large obviously uh i mean it's one of it's like the main or one of the main achievements of reconstruction when reconstruction is still like you know when black people are still in power in the south right is that they establish public schools and you know black literacy like climbs extremely rapidly it's like the top political priority for the enfranchised and empowered black working class and you know there's a reason for that um i read this book last year by toby higby who's a excellent labor historian at ucla called Labor's Mind. Um, that's all about how, I mean, it's about working class intellectual culture kind of at the turn of the century, but um, the kind of beginning of it, he's like to navigate industrial America successfully and survive and get by and find work and housing and all this kind of thing. Uh, you know, you're constantly having to like interpret symbols, like literal, you know, words and writing, but also other kinds of, uh, you know, other kinds of communication and so on. Um, and, you know, the struggle over who actually controls the means of like symbolic production and consumption uh, is it, just like a huge theme of working class history that I think we often, or I often, do not pay enough attention to as someone who studies the 20th mm -hmm. century. I mean, this is his case in large part for why Cobbett was so influential was that he sort of, he goes into this in the section on him, but this emphasis on he was making sure his writing could be understood by the broadest sort of possible readership. And in a sort of, in a way that might seem like he's belaboring points and things, or like using these metaphors that Thompson shows examples of, where they're, the example of the scarecrow that he uses, and it's 
this sort of thing that he wants the people who would be familiar with a scarecrow to actually be able to understand what he's saying. And so he'll spell it out for like an entire page, the comparison he's making. And it's sort of on one level, this evidence of Cobbett's like radically democratic politics, despite his other shortcomings that Thompson sort of goes over. But on the other hand, it's also just what makes him so incredibly influential is that he creates this public that can talk amongst each other and across each other in this new language that is tethered to their actual experience. And in this, you know, some are illiterate and have this sort of disgust and that's how they get this, they sort of imbibe this writing. Others are sort of newly literate or literate, but not fluent but they can understand his writing because he makes such an effort to make it legible to them yeah i I just on i didn't note this passage on 716 717 when i read it this time but i'm noting it now um i mean thompson is kind of going through the different conditions that lead to different kind of levels of relationships to literacy um and he writes uh the artisans are a special case the intellectual elite of the class but there were, scattered throughout all parts of England, an abundance of educational institutions for working people. Even if institution is too formal a word for the dame school, I don't know what that is, the penny-a-week evening school run by a factory crippler injured pitman, or the Sunday school itself. In the Pennine Valleys, where the weaver's children were too poor to pay for slates or paper, they were taught their letters by drawing them with their fingers in a sand table. If thousands lost these elementary attainments when they reached adult life, on the other hand, the work of the nonconformist churches, of friendly societies and trade unions, and the needs of industry itself, all demanded that such learning be consolidated and advanced. I have found, Alexander Galloway, the master engineer, reported in 1824, from the mode of managing my business by drawings and written descriptions, a man is not of much use to me unless he can read and write. If a man applies for work and says he cannot read and write, he has asked no more questions. And then he kind of goes on to, illiter- to uh, iterate different kinds of, you know, ballad singer, number man, calendar man, um, people selling chapbooks, almanacs, dying speeches, etc., who kind of populate the literary world of the working class. And at the bottom of the page, he says, each each evening, the London papers were to be, quote, publicly read. At the rooms of the Stockport Union in 1818, according to Joseph Mitchell, there was a meeting of class leaders on Monday nights. On Tuesdays, moral and political readings. On Wednesdays, a conversation or debate. On Thursdays, grammar, arithmetic, etc. was taught. Saturday was a social evening, while Sunday was school day for adults and children alike. So he's really, I mean, he earlier on that page says, one of the most impressive features of post-war radicalism was its sustained effort to extend these attainments and to raise the level of political awareness. So this, in the similar way you're describing how quickly literacy rates rise among black people in the United States during Reconstruction, you're sort of seeing this sustained focus on uh, the politicization of reading and literacy. I mean, the end, this whole first section is really th- about that. I, I, you know, I underline things like, the artisan culture was, above all, that of the self-taught. And then later he says on 727, in this way, a reading public, which was increasingly working class in character, was forced to organize itself. Um, so he's just emphasizing this sort of the politicization of this sort of literacy um, spreading and these and then he goes what he goes on to spend most of uh, sort of the bulk of the chapter on is what you're getting to which is some of these figures that were the subjects of such uh, yeah I do think you know uh, I mean again looking at it now I'm struck by the kind of subtlety of this Um, 
I mean, this is really an argument, ultimately, although the story is told through the producers of the, uh, you know, of the content. Uh, <laughs> it's really, the, the way the argument actually works is that it's about the demand, right? That there is this demand for it. And the demand will be filled, will be met. Um, there's a passage on 725, a long passage I'm going to read about Carlyle. Um, he says he was an indomitable man, but he was scarcely lovable. And his years of imprisonment did not improve him. <laughs> How does Thompson know this about these guys' personalities? Yeah, right. <laughs> I love that this stuff he never bothers to cite like any source. Just... Yeah, I mean, I believe, I'm sure he's right, you know. But <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, his strength lay in two things. First, he would not even admit of the possibility of defeat. And second, he added at his backs the culture of the artisans. The first point is not as evident as it appears. Determined men have often, as in the 1790s, been silenced or defeated. It is true that Carlyle's brand of determination, quote, the shop in Fleet Street will not be closed as a matter of course, all caps, was peculiarly difficult for the authorities to meet. No matter how much law they had on their side, they must always incur odium by prosecutions, but they had provided themselves under the six acts with the power to banish the authors of sedition for offenses far less than those which Carlyle both committed and proudly admitted. But his testimony to the delicate equilibrium of the time and to the limits imposed upon power by the consensus of constitutionalist opinion that even in 1820 this provision of the act was not employed. Banishment apart, Carlyle could not be silenced unless he were to be beheaded or more possibly placed in solitary confinement. But there are two reasons why the government did not proceed to extreme measures. First, already by 1821, it seemed to them less necessary for the increased stamp duties were taking effect. Second, it was apparent, and this is really what I was trying to get at, uh, after the first encounters, that if Carlyle were to be silenced, half a dozen new Carlyles would step into his place. The first two who did so were, in fact, Carlyles, his wife and his sister. Thereafter, the shopmen came forward. By one count, before the battle had ended, Carlyle had received the help of 150 volunteers who, shopmen, printers, newsvendors, had between them served 200 years of imprisonment. The volunteers were advertised for in the Republican, men, quote, who were free, able, and willing to serve in General Carlyle's corps. It is most distinctly to be understood, this is the ad, uh, that a love of propagating the principles and a sacrifice of liberty to that end and not gain must be the motive to call forth such volunteers. For though R. Carlyle pledges himself to give such men the best support in his power, should any great number be imprisoned, he is not so situated as to, as to property or prospects as to be able to promise any particular sum weekly. But I feel like uh, that really tells you something about uh, just the depth of this of this world and the depth of demand for supply of, uh, you know, this kind of material. So as Thompson says at the beginning of the next page, the men and women who came forward in response to Carlyle were in nearly every case entirely unknown to him. They simply came out of London or arrived on the coach from Lincolnshire, Dorset, Liverpool, and Leeds. They came out of a culture. I love that. Yeah, I mean, to, this is sort of the thing about, he's he, even though he goes in depth with these profiles of people like Carlisle and, and whatnot, they're sort of just stand-ins for this broader, these currents that might not be quite organized, but actually at this point are becoming somewhat organized. I mean, when Yeah, they're just ways in which the class knows itself. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, even just immediately, or on the next, on 728, um, in 1830 and 1831, the black ensign of defiance was hoisted once again. Cobbett found a loophole in the law and recommenced his two-penny trash. 
but this time it was Hetherington, a printing worker, who led the frontal attack. His poor man's guardian carried the emblem of a hand press, the motto, Knowledge is Power, and the heading, Published Contrary to Law, law in quotes, to try the power of might against right. His opening address quoted clause by clause the laws he intended to defy. The poor man's, quote, the poor man's guardian will contain news, intelligence, and occurrences, and remarks and observations thereon, and upon matters of church and state tending decidedly to excite hatred and contempt of the government and constitution of this country, as by law established, and also to vilify the abuses of religion. It would also defy every clause of the stamp tax legislation or any other acts whatsoever, and despite the laws, in quotes, or the will and pleasure of any tyrant or body of tyrants whatsoever, anything herein before or anywhere else to the contrary, <laughs> notwithstanding. <laughs> continues with his fourth number carried the advertisement wanted some hundreds of poor men to employ out of employ who have nothing to risk to sell to the poor and ignorant this paper not only were the volunteers found but a score of other unstamped papers sprang up notably carlisle's gauntlet and joshua hobson's voice of voice of the west riding by 1836 the struggle was substantially over and the way had been open for the chartist press and the next paragraph starts with the sentence but the quote great unstamped was emphatically a working-class press. So here we see something we haven't really seen yet in the book. Right just after what you were reading just now, just he's just kind of enumerating the kind of working-class uh, culture of this press, of this dissident press. Uh, Joshua Hobson was a former handloom weaver who had built a wooden hand press by his own labor, and Brontero O'Brien's destructive, great name for a magazine, uh, consciously sought to develop working class radical theory, but I just like the building of the press with your own hands. You know, feels like the perfect symbol of this. Also, then there's this whole the bottom of the next page, seven twenty nine. He starts talking about the last sentence. Uh, he says a whole pattern of distribution with its own folklore grew up around the militant press. Hawkers, Mayhew was told. In order to avoid, quote, selling the Republican, sold straws instead, and then gave the paper to their customers. In the Spen Valley, in the days of the unstamped, a penny was dropped through a grating and the paper would appear. In other parts, men would slip down alleys or across fields at night to the known rendezvous. More than once, the unstamped were transported under the, nose of the noses of the authorities in a coffin and with a godly cortege of freethinkers. Paints quite a picture of a something that is no longer a extremely niche or marginal uh, subculture. Yeah, although I will say um, on seven twenty nine, I wrote in uh, sort of halfway down the main paragraph. I, I started and wrote the GoFundMe of eighteen twenty um, because <laughs> oh, you know no. this is a discussion of how uh, when people do get prosecuted. You know, and they can be flogged or imprisoned. I mean, it's it's bad news. Um, but, uh, you know, men were thrown into verminous houses of correction, often chained and fettered, often without knowledge of the law or means of defense, unless their cases were noted by Cobbett, Carlyle, or some section of the radicals, their families were left without any income and might be forced into the workhouse. Uh, and it was then in the small, many of the smaller centers of the contest that the contest of freedom was most hard fought. But, you know, the thing of like, I mean, I guess, you know, it's because of recent events, especially, that the idea that there are sort of prominent figures in the press who can say, you know, please support the legal case of, you know, this person 
And then if, Car- you know, Cobbett or Carlisle or whoever does that, then you might be able to, or, you know, help support their family while they're imprisoned or whatever. Uh, I mean, that, again, that feels not so far away. Right, sure. This, there's a bunch of, to- I mean, to finish this section before we go on to Cobbett, like, there's a bunch of talk of Methodism again and sort of the anti-intellectual culture of Methodism and uh, the British working classes, um, sort of the conjuncture between that and then um, working class culture of the 20s, sort of certain types of knowledge being valued while others are sort of demonized or dismissed, um, quite literally demonized, I mean, at times seen as sort of like uh, satanic or at least not tending to the good of the soul. But then, I mean... To me, I have nothing else to say about this section. And then we get to William Cobbett on 746. Yeah. Okay. Uh, He introduces this section on Cobbett by saying, Cobbett throws his influence across the years from the end of the wars until the passing of the reform bill. To say that he was in no sense a systematic thinker is not to say that his was not a serious intellectual influence. It was Cobbett who created this radical intellectual culture. Not because he offered its most original ideas, but in the sense that he found the tone, the style, and the arguments which could bring the weaver, the schoolmaster, and the shipwright into a common discourse. Out of the diversity of grievances and interests, he brought a radical consensus. His political registers were like a circulating medium which provided a common means of exchange between the experiences of men of widely differing attainments. And then he lays out, for contrast, Hazlitt, and uh, their sort of different tones and styles. Um, where he sort of has a lot of admiration for Hazlitt, but when you start to read the comparison, it's very clear that Cobbett's real goal here was to bring in these more working-class people and speak directly to them. He says, It's not difficult to show that Cobbett had some very stupid and contradictory ideas and sometimes bludgeoned his readers with specious arguments, but such demonstrations are beside the point unless the profound... The truly profound democratic influence of Cobbett's attitude to his audience is understood. Payne anticipates the tone, but Cobbett, for 30 years, talked to his audience like this until men were talking and arguing like Cobbett all over the land. He assumed, as a matter scarcely in need of demonstration, that every citizen whatsoever had the power of reason, and that it was by argument addressed to the common understanding that matters should be settled. Yeah, and he. Get, I mean, and I think it's worth reading. I mean, uh, Thompson gives a few examples of excerpts of Cobbett's writing um, to sort of make this point. The first one he gives on seven forty eight, he says the excerpt from Cobbett is uh, starts. There are of these places and pensions all sizes, from twenty pounds to thirty thousands, and nearly forty thousand pounds a year. There are several individual placemen, the profits of each of which would maintain a thousand families. Mr. Preston, who is a member of Parliament and has a large estate, says upon the subject, every family, even the poorest laborers, consisting of five persons, may be considered as paying in indirect taxes at least ten pounds a year, or more than half his wages at seven shillings a week. And Cobbett writes, and yet the insolent hirelings call you the mob, the rabble, the swinish multitude, and say that your voice is nothing. As uh, Thompson comments afterwards, everything here is solid and related, not to a literary culture, but to a commonly available experience. Even Mr. Preston is placed. Cobbett brought the rhythms of speech back into prose, but of strenuously argumentative, emphatic speech. So I just think it's important to get a sense of really how he's writing and the sort of moves he's making that are about sort of 
each sentence, making sure it's clear to this newly literate and differing, sort of unevenly literate population, right? It's a great image he paints, the quote you read of every man is arguing like combat, sort of um, as a sense of what he's actually doing here. Um, I think it's a convincing argument that actually his sort of intellectual, uh, the lack of depth intellectually didn't wasn't a big uh, sort of focus compared to what he was actually achieving in producing this class. Yeah. It's funny, uh, so on 751, he writes, I think he'd said this in a previous chapter where he first had painted a picture of Cobbett, but he says at the bottom of 751, the other device which we've already noted is the personalization of political issues, a personalization centered upon Cobbett of Botley himself. But if Cobbett was his own subject, he handled this subject with unusual objectivity. So it's just funny to, like... He sort of demonstrates this in different excerpts of Cobbett's writing, especially about his ventures into rural places that he's like a main character, the sort of classic like personal essay style uh, writing. Like, like I got off the plane and my taxi driver said <laughs> yeah, to me. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, to his credit, like Thompson does paint this picture of uh, that this did help place readers who maybe didn't had never left where they were from or where they lived. Uh, it sort of helped actually make the argument through these sense experiences. Cobbett also is himself a landowner, right? Um, and employs some number of agricultural workers. Um, and, you know, this is sort of an ambivalent fact about him, obviously, but or ambiguous fact about him. But um, in some way, it seems like even that he deploys in a way similar to what you're saying, where... Uh, you know, he can kind of write about, like, trying to deal fairly with, like, uh, the workers who work for him, right? And, like, from the perspective of, like, a 21st century Marxist, you could be like, come on, man. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, from – it's easy to imagine how actually a working class reader can read that um, and understand this as a kind of credible voice. Right. On 7.54, Thompson goes into the way Cobbett dressed – uh, that he was sort of always uh, idealizing. Um, he uses the term gentleman farmers. And he gives several accounts, one from Hazlitt, one from Bamford, um, about Cobbett, how he dressed in this sort of weirdly traditional way. Um, and so he, there's not a sense of, there's a sense of sort of idealizing a certain political economy that isn't quite the the future of the country as far as when he's writing. Um, and yet, I think you're right that there's at least there's a very clear standpoint going on. Of and it's part of his resonance, clearly. Right. On the so on the flip side, uh, Thompson does emphasize his sort of limitations as a thinker and a political thinker. Um, he talks about his opportunism. Uh, on 757, he writes, such opportunism made impossible the development of any systematic political theory out of Cobbettism. And his economic prejudices were of a piece with this kind of evasion. Just as he developed not a critique of a political system, nor even of legitimacy, but an invective against old corruption, so he reduced economic analysis to a, le to a polemic against the parasitism of certain vested interests. He could not allow a critique which centered, centered on ownership. Therefore, he expounded with much repetition a demonology in which the people's evils were caused by taxation, the national debt and the paper money system, and by the hordes of parasites, fund holders, placemen, brokers, and tax collectors who had battened upon these three. 
That is not to say that this critique was baseless. There was fuel enough for Cobbett's fire in the grossly exploitative pattern of taxation in the parasitic activities of the East India Company and the banks. But characteristically, Cobbett's prejudices keyed in with the grievances of the small producers, shopkeepers, artisans, small farmers, and the consumers. Attention was diverted from the landowner and industrial capitalist and focused upon the middleman. The factor or broker who cornered markets profited from the people's shortages or lived in any way not closely attached to land or industry upon unearned income. These arguments were moral as much as economic. Men were entitled to wealth, but only if they could be seen to be hard at work. Next to Sinecurus, Cobbett hated Quaker speculators. So, I think it's a good picture in short of what Thompson alludes to throughout this whole section, which is, uh, on the one, I mean, sort of occupying this position, gentleman farmer is going to lead to a certain, if you're talking about a radical critique, um, there's going to be limitations that are arising from that. Yeah, on uh, 760, uh, he quotes an account that Cobbett gives of his own conduct as a landlord. He cited the case of an old cottager living in retirement on the farm at Botley when he took it up. The old man paid me no rent, Cobbett writes. When he died, I had a headstone put to his grave to record that he had been an honest, skillful, and industrious laboring man, and I gave his widow a shilling a week as long as I was at Botley. Here he is, in, this Thompson, here he is indistinguishable from the better kind of squire whose passing he so often lamented. But this is not all. There is also that uncomfortable sentence no society ought to exist where the laborers live in a hog-like sort of way. No society ought to exist. The very touchstone of his social criticism is the condition of the laboring man. So he's he's an ambivalent figure because he represents uh, this process of like decomposition and recomposition. Mm-hmm. And the other thing, before we move on to the... I f- can't remember how long this section goes. Oh yeah, we're almost done with it. I just I had noted this um, quote that Thompson includes from 1820 from the Political Register, Cobbett's uh, journal. Um, that's this sort of so. Despite all these shortcomings and ambivalences, you know the upside that Thompson wants to emphasize is his democratic character, right? And he writes on 758 that he's constantly talking at reform meetings. He's on lecture tours. Um, he's constantly engaged in correspondence with all sorts of people, working class people, and uh, he writes. Cobbett writes in 1820, well, he st- Thompson starts, Hence Cobbett's ideas can be seen less as a one-way propagandist flow than as the incandescence of an alternating current between his readers and himself. Quote, I always say that I have derived from the people ten times the light that I have communicated to them. And then there's a block quote. A writer engaged in the destruction of such a people is constantly upheld not only by the applause that he receives from them, and by perceiving that his labors are attended with effect, but also by the aid which he is continually deriving from those new thoughts which his thoughts produce in their minds. It is the flint and the steel meeting that brings forth the fire. Thompson writes, How moving is this insight into the dialectical nature of the very process by which his own ideas were formed? For Cobbett's thought was not a system, but a relationship. Few writers can be found who are so much the voice of their own audience. It is possible to follow Cobbett's genius as an indicator of the movement for which he spoke. At times of crisis, there is the bright incandescence. At times when the movement flagged, he becomes most cranky and idiosyncratic. His style glows only dully. And this is true until his very last years. As his audience changed, so he has changed with it. I thought, on some level, it's a very, the actual block quote from Kaveh is like a very self-serving, like, sure, of course, that's, uh, 
yeah, man, whatever. Of course, that's how I learn as much from my students as they learn from me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, compared to the picture he drew of, like, Hunt, for example, it's like, it's interesting to see Thompson sort of holding someone up in this romantic way as sort of this ideal um, sort of, uh, yeah, like lightning rod for the movement. Yeah. I mean, on 760, uh, he has this passage about, it's right after the thing I read before about how he's this kind of like good squire as opposed to something more democratic. But then he goes on. Um, when, as at the time of the laborer's revolt or the new poor law, he judged this condition to be unendurable, then he was willing to challenge the received social order. Quote, God gave them life upon this land. They have as much right to be upon it as you have. They have a clear right to a maintenance out of the land in exchange for their labor. And if you cannot so manage your lands yourself as to take labor from them in exchange for a living, give the land up to them. This is written less than six months before he died. This is why Cobbett and John Fielden, his friend and fellow member for Oldham after 1832, came so close to being spokesmen of the working class. Once the real condition of the working people for Cobbett the laborer, for Fielden the factory child, is made not one, but the test of all other political expedients, then we are close to revolutionary conclusions. Concealed within the seemingly nostalgic notion of the historic rights of the poor, which in different ways was voiced by Cobbett, Osler, and Carlyle, there were also new claims maturing for the community to succor the needy and the helpless, not out of charity, but as of right. Anyway, so that's Cobbett. Uh, and Thompson ends the section... Um, summing up by saying uh, he nourished the culture of a class whose wrongs he felt but whose remedies he could not understand and then we get on to sort of um, these less prominent currents that follow or overlap with Covet which are um, it's, this is page 762 um, so he's talking about the artisans you know are, are still reading Covet but they aren't thinking of him seriously as a thinker um, they're still reading his polemics. They continue to read him, but they began to read some other journals as well. Among these lesser journals between 1817 and 1832, there is much original and demanding thought, which was to give shape to the political consciousness of the class after 1832. We may select from this four tendencies. The Payne-Carlyle tradition, the working class utilitarians in the Gorgon, the trade unionists around the trades newspaper of John Gast, and the variety of tendencies associated with Owenism. So that's the next section, is those four tendencies. Um, he makes, Thompson makes a whole, he talks a lot about um, sort of the term petite bourgeois individualism, um, and it's sort of what he sees as uh, helpfulness or not. He sort of didn't see it as helpful for describing some things around Cobbett, for example. But he says here, if we make the difficult effort to discard some of the pejorative associations of the term, we can see that in the case of Carlyle, it is helpful. The model in the back of his mind is perhaps that of the little master, the hatter, the brushmaker, the bookseller. We can see in Carlyle not only the limitations of the little bourgeoisie, but also in this insurgent time, their strengths. Um, as he uh, goes down the page, in terms of rights of press and speech, the results were as dramatic as was Combat's democratic tone, but in terms of political in economic theory, the position was either barren or delusive, and he sort of emphasizes the strength of the Lockean ideology, laying the fact that the bourgeois were men of large property, um, and he's sort of laying out the politics behind the Carlisle strand of pain, painian, I don't know what term you would use, um, advocacy. 
for example, he's talking about the shortcomings earlier on the page on 765. And he quotes Carlyle saying, let each do his duty without reference to what his neighbor does. And Thompson asked, did he not know that the essence of the working class radical movement consisted in each man, quote, consulting with his neighbors? Without his, this consultation, his shopmen would not have come forward. His country agents would not have held to their posts. Um, and he ends the paragraph for this is not only pain, it is also lock. Yeah. And you also the sentence you just uh, bypassed. The key to his blindness lies perhaps in the phrase to perhaps to sorry, to preserve what liberty and property he may already possess against any tyrannical attempts uh, for this is not only pain it is also luck and I do think I mean this is you know this is a kind of ambivalence throughout Thompson right the, the, the way in which there's always this preservationist element um, if not of property past a certain point certainly of liberty um, that is emerging from well and even of property right because it's emerging from the structure of small ownership that characterizes who's going to develop into the working class before they're fully proletarianized. I mean, it's, you know, it's, uh, we've said this about this book a number of times, but the way in which he's set the making in such a kind of early moment, as opposed to the 1880s or something like that, means that, you know, a large number of his kind of spokespeople down to the last chapter are still like, oh, but the working class kind of still owns some property. Is it really a working class, right? And like, mm. you think we'd be past this by chapter 16. <laughs> <laughs> you think wrong, Gabe. <laughs> so, he, despite, so he's sort of these, to what to Thompson are obviously like sort of short limitations of sorts of this thought. He writes on 767 of Carlyle. Nevertheless, when all these criticisms have been made, and there are many, and they go far to explain the stridency of the militant rationalist tradition of the 19th century, when all this has been said, it was Carlyle who set up the market. Nor is this a figure of speech. His publications were one market. It was he who published Payne, Volney, Palmer, Holbach, and many others. But he also set up the market for a spoken debate. In 1830, he founded the Rotunda, in which the formative debates of the London working class movement took place. Its proceedings were regularly published were published regularly in his prompter. The journal might have been better entitled The Promoter. Pretty good joke from uh, Thompson there. <laughs> For this is what, in effect, Carlyle had become. He was the showman of free thought. And no one had more right to this situation. He cast around for star performers who had drawn the crowds. And then he proceeds to list a bunch of them. Then he goes on to sort of talk about um, so 768, still criticizing Carlyle, he says, like other individualists, his egotism had engrossed the cause and he resented the idea that others might make it theirs. Quote, beware of political clubs, he wrote a month later. He had the strongest feeling against clubs, societies, and even trade unions or benefit clubs. Quote, almost every horror of the French Revolution sprung out of political clubs. I pronounce them all to be dastardly associations, contemptible, frivolous, paltry nothings. Uh, so he's not the most helpful organizer. Yeah, let every man organize himself, he writes yes. in, in all caps. Yeah, right. It's <laughs> not how it works, brother. He sort of, um, he quotes a bit from Carlyle talking about how he doesn't really like poetry. Um, he's, he ends 268 by saying, in Carlyle, this is implicit. Even poetry must be useful and import, impart knowledge. He then contrasts this to the next strand he's going to cover, which is the Gorgon he says, the Gorgon's intellectual history is more exciting. It was an explicit attempt to effect a junction between Benthamism and working class experience. 
It was not as place might have made it if he had captured it. An attempt to simply relay the ideas of the middle class utilitarians to a working class audience. John Wade, the former journeyman wool sorter who edited it, was a man of originality and great application who did not take his ideas on trust. And then he writes further down the page. In the result, the Gorgons seem not so much to accept these ideas as to wrestle with them. The inquiry is being made. Can utilitarianism in the context of working class experience be put to use? I, I mean, I found this section fascinating and so it's so strange to me. I, mean, I knew at some distance that there was a phenomenon in the early 19th century of a kind of working class utilitarianism. But, you know, I mean, utilitarianism is basically like the ideology of the industrial bourgeoisie in the 19th century. You know, if you fast forward a few decades, especially, it's like unambiguous, right? It's the basis of rational choice economics, ultimately, um, or of neoclassical economics, rather, and then, you know, everything that comes from that. Um, it's, you know, in Bentham famously himself, right, is the def de the designer of the panopticon, uh, both, you know, prison and also like kind of factory design, right? Um, so I think it's an interesting challenge that Thompson is taking up here, like trying to make the possibility, the kind of ultimately failed connection of working class utilitarianism seem like a not, you know, presented in such a way that it doesn't immediately appear to be the dead end that it, it looks to be now in retrospect. Um, and, you know, I think this too has to do with the kind of transitional character of the whole period of this book, right? That uh, the social barrier, the social line between the industrial bourgeoisie and the working class is not so sharply defined until quite late in the story. But yeah, I found it, I found it a, a little hard to follow the political ideas that were being worked through. In part, maybe they're, I could have used more examples of what they're actually writing in this journal and stuff, but just trying to follow the, the sort of occupation with social reform and trade union and then utilitarianism. And then he writes about theories of social structure and political economy. It was just very unclear what the actual advocated policies were. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I could be wrong about this, but my basic sense of it, um, you're on 772. Um, on the one hand, there is a strong emphasis upon labor as a source of value, an emphasis perhaps strengthened by Ricardo's Principles of Economics, published the previous year. Quote, labor is the superabundant product of this country, wrote the Gorgon, and is the chief commodity we export. Um of the four staple manufacturers, namely cotton, linen, cloth, and iron. Perhaps on an average, the raw material does not constitute one-tenth of their value, the remaining nine-tenths being created by the laborers of the weaver, spinner, dyer, smith, cutler, and 50 others. The labors of these men form the chief article of traffic in this country. It is by trading in the blood and bones of the journeymen and laborers of England that our merchants have derived their riches and the country its glory. I mean, I think what's going on here is... Um, you know, in some way continuing what we were just talking about with regard to the previous figures as a kind of analysis uh, of the condition of the working class that's about how it's being cheated in the market, right? Which is uh, ultimately different from like what kind of a Marxist kind of exploitation, right? Which is that, uh, you know, the fair exchange of the, of the uh, you know, of capital against the value of labor power nonetheless entails exploitation of labor power, right? That the capitalist is not, is not cheating the worker. Um, and 
you know, I think the like what makes these people libertarians and what makes them kind of like liberals in a certain way in the tradition of Smith and Ricardo is the idea that if we had, I mean, basically fair markets, right, in which merchants were not cheating us, um, that would undo the misery of the working classes. I can I, can I do a brief aside here? Um, there's this fabulous book by this historical sociologist named Richard Bernanke called The Fabrication of Labor. It's a comparison of the emergence of um, labor markets in England and Germany over the course of the Industrial Revolution. And basically, he says, the difference between these countries uh, with regard to this story is that in England, there's a free market in goods long before, centuries before, there's a free market in labor. Um, whereas in Germany, these things happen basically at the same time. And what that means is that in England, you get, you know, the whole world of people who this book is basically, who Thompson is basically writing about, all the people who kind of own some of their own means of production, have some control or skill or whatever, um, and encounter their employer functionally as someone who they're trading with, right? Like you're spinning yarn in your house or whatever, and you sell your product to your to the merchant. And that's kind of an employment relationship, really, but they encounter it as a kind of trade. Um, whereas in Germany, these things happen at the same time. And so that, that whole phase doesn't really happen, Bernanke says. The result of this is that, uh, so what the book is really interested in is, what do people think labor is? Like the commodity that's sold on the market called labor, what is it? And in England, and how do they observe it and measure it and set a price for it and all this kind of thing? Um, in England, he says, uh, it's measured in the product, um, at least in the textile industry, which is what he studies. Um, people kind of measure the value of, of, of labor, the value of labor in the output. Whereas in Germany, it's, it's understood as a kind of abstract unit of time uh, because of these different trajectories. Therefore, when Karl Marx flees Germany, comes to England, looks around, sees all these people like measuring their labor in products. He's like, no, 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 I have a better word for this. It's Arbeitskraft, it's labor power, it's abstract. It's, you know, it's a unit of time. And basically the book kind of plays out how these two different conceptions become manifest in, um, you know, all kinds of things. Like how do employers, uh, if, if a worker is late, how do they have different, you know, there's different sort of national patterns for punishing a worker for being late. Because are you stealing product? right or whatever right um and ultimately the labor parties of these different or social democratic parties of these countries are different along these lines and so on but that struck me here as or i thought that came to my mind in reading this this section about the kind of work, attempt to create a working class utilitarianism as really expressing that idea that workers are simply merchants of labor sorry that was a very lengthy little digression no it was helpful i mean because so he writes you know, there's sort of, um, and the influence of place here is um, significant. On 773, he quotes, uh, I think, place, um, who writes, both masters and journeymen ought in all cases to act individually, not collectively. When either party has recourse to unnatural or artificial expedients, they produce unnatural effects. The theory of natural laws or rights shut out by Wade at the front door has been invited in by place at the back. For by this time is scarcely possible to think of middle class utilitarianism without thinking also of Malthus and of orthodox political economy. The doctrine of utility could only be interpreted in the light of the laws of population 
and those of supply and demand. If utilitarianism was to enter working class ideology, it would make it ca captive to the employing class. And by the way, this is what this is what Anderson says happens, right? I mean, this is like a key argument of Anderson is that like the working class somewhat like gets somewhat permeated with utilitarianism. To your point about workers in England in this era sort of thinking of themselves as much as sort of trading at the market with their employers, quote unquote, uh, this makes more sense then as a sort of why the argument for why not acting collectively and so on is easier to sort of swallow right our next character gast is cool though I love okay yeah talk about gast well so gast is a kind of figure of the um of like the trade union world basically right he's a shipwright yeah he has kind of been involved in working class organization for decades since the 1790s it seems like um and he runs the trades newspaper, with the, which has the motto on 775, they helped everyone his neighbor, which is important, not Thompson writes, not, it's important not only because it throws a flood of light upon the strength of trade unionism, which until this time, one must follow through the shadows of the courts and the home office papers. It also indicates a point of complete rupture between middle-class utilitarianism on one hand and emergent trade union theory on the other. The conflict was quite explicit it is as if the orthodox parts of the Gorgon, being the utilitarian paper, had gone with place and weighed, while the unorthodox claims for the value of combination became the basis for Gast's new venture. Some of the polemics were aimed specifically at place. I love how we beat up place just constantly through this book. <laughs> yeah, he's like the real, he's like this sort of like low-key villain. He has some everything. redeeming moments, but yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> some of the polemics were aimed specifically at place and in a manner both unfortunate and unfair. And this may help to explain why Gast and the London trades feature so little in Place's own account of these years. And what I was going to say after you read that line is the reason Place keeps coming up, it gets, the reason he gets such, is sort of vilified by Thompson is because he, Thompson thinks he's falsified and distorted all of his accounts of this time. And, you know, for Thompson, given the methodology of this book, this is like the greatest crime you could do is distort the record. Especially because <laughs> we still have to depend on him for a bunch of the record, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. So it's very funny. It's like this very personal sort of like, and this guy, can you believe he was one of the only people recording it and we all he's laying his like petty personal vendettas distort the, you know, historical archive. So I don't know. I mean, there's this, there's coverage of uh, gas ongoing sort of arguments with place, him attacking place and so on. This is the very bottom of 777. Gast had rejected the model of a natural and self-adjusting political economy, which left unrestrained would operate to the benefits of employers employed alike. An essential antagonism of interests is assumed, and its resolution or adjustment must be a matter of force. What might be of utility to capital might well be oppressive to labor. And for the shaping working class theory, there came in important intellectual reinforcements. Yeah, so again, here, the kind of rupture with utilitarianism. And I underline what might be of utility to capital might well be oppressive to labor because finally this sort of, again, this assumption of antagonistic interests is coming out. Um, he ends the section on, on these characters. He's talking a little bit about this character, Hodgskin, who's a kind of uh, somewhat similar figure to Gast, a kind of confederate of Gast. Um, and he writes, um, Hodgskin did not offer an alternate system and there is a sense in which he sidestepped the question of property rights. What he sanctioned was a mounting organized pressure 
by all the strength and intellectual and moral resources of the working class to confiscate the gross wealth of a capitalist interloper. So there's still a sense of an interloper here, right? But nonetheless, um, this war of capital and labor between honest industry and idle profligacy would not end until the workers receive the full product of their own labor, until man shall be held more in honor than the clod he treads on or the machine he guides. It's good. <laughs> and then we get to Owenism. Yeah. Owenism is important. What do you want to say about Owenism? Um, it's so strange. It's such a strange story. It is a very strange story. And to be honest, I didn't. I don't actually know that much about Owenism. It's funny also because you learn in passing about it like in ninth grade history almost. I feel like I like I can picture like I can picture some sketch of like an Owen, you know, commune. Yeah, like commune. In, a text, in like a textbook. Uh huh. Because um, he's you know, he spends his time in the U.S. Obviously, and, right? Um, so he has this like level of of notoriety that so much exceeds almost everyone else in this book. Mm-hmm. But you don't encounter him at all, obviously, in the context of all of these other figures and movements surrounding him. And again, I mean, why is that? Well, he's not political. He's completely apolitical. (laughs) He almost comes off like child. I mean, I think, I don't know if Thompson uses this word or something else, but like childlike or like naive. He just completely sidesteps class conflict and thinks you can sort of have this like gradual confluence of interests between all the classes. Yeah. So, I mean... I'll just read this little introduction to Owen we get on 780. The story of Robert Owen of New Lanark is well known, even legendary. The model paternalist mill owner and self-made man who canvassed the royalty, courtiers, and governments of Europe with his philanthropic proposals, the growing exasperation of Owen's tone as he met with polite applause and practical discouragement, his propaganda to all classes, and his proclamation of the millennium, the growing interest in his ideas and promises among some working people the rise and fall of the early experimental communities, notably Orbiston, Owen's departure to America for more experiments in community building, 1824 to 29, the growing support for Owenism during his absence, the enriching of his theory by Thompson, Gray, and others, and the adoption of a form of Owenism by some of the trade unionists, the initiative of Dr. King at Brighton with his cooperator, and the widely scattered experiments in cooperative training, the initiative of some London artisans, uh, etc., etc., the swelling tide after Owen's return, when he found himself, almost despite himself, at the head of a movement which led on to the Grand National Consolidated Trades Union. It is an extraordinary story, and yet there is a sense in which parts of it had to be so. We may start at the point of entry with the paternalist tradition, and we must see that the great experiments at New Lanark were institu- instituted to meet the same difficulties of labor discipline and the adaptation of the unruly Scottish laborers to new industrial work patterns that we have already encountered in our discussion of Methodism. So Owen is a whole, you like, you could write this whole book, Thompson seeming to say, through about Owen instead, you know, or like much of this book anyway, right? That um, the, he, he, in himself and in his efforts, embodies a huge number of the kind of forces coming out of Industrial Revolution. So basically, Owen is this kind of benign paternalistic bourgeois who, uh, you know, has this vision of like reconciliation of social conflict and a kind of utopian cooperative uh, form of community. Uh, Thompson writes, he was in one sense the ne plus ultra of utilitarianism, planning society as a gigantic industrial panopticon, 
In another and most admirable and kindly sense, he was an industrial handway who thought a good deal about children, liked to see them happy, and really was outraged at their callous exploitation. But the notion of working class advance by its own self-activity toward its own goals was alien to Owen, even though he was drawn between 1829 and 1834 into exactly this kind of movement. He also calls him on that page. He was cast as the kindly papa of socialism, Mr. Owen, the philanthropist. Later, he says, next to benevolent, the words most commonly encountered in early Owenite writings are, quote, provided for them. So we're certainly not in a, a class building itself here when it comes to Owen's writings. No, I mean, on 783, uh, his proposed institutions, wrote Sherwin, would be prisons, a community of vassals. Mr. Owen's project uh, object appears to me to be to, uh, to cover the face of the country with workhouses, to rear up a community of slaves, and consequently to render the laboring part of the people absolutely dependent upon the men of property. It's not a completely unreasonable description. There's a great line also further down that page where Thompson writes, On the one hand, Owen simply had a vacant place in his mind where most men have political responses, <laughs> which I think is one of the harshest lines in the whole book. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because he you know i guess because he's the sort of like prominent industrialist he is able to like get meetings with high officials all the time and so the chapter is full of them right right you know he meets with uh you know all these prominent guys and is like why don't we simply reorganize society into um you know small cooperative communities where we produce in common um and they're like that sounds nice see you later you know um Right. I mean, there's lots of sort of Thompson includes lots of quotes where it's people like, you know, Mr. Owen, if he ever were to like if his experiments ever spread and people actually took it up, he wouldn't just be laughed out of the room, but all of a sudden would actually be treated really poorly and like would be seen as a threat. But so long as he's just like an ex a political eccentric, you know, people are happy to sort of um, quiet as he puts it in that first description you read, quietly encourage him or politely encourage him as they sort of make sure that no one takes him seriously. Because um, as long as he's avoiding class conflict, he's not really a threat to anyone. He's, he's Thompson says on 785, he spent a small fortune in posting his, his addresses to men of influence throughout the country and a larger fortune upon the experimental communities. By, by 1819, his patrons had grown weary of him, and he in turn was addressing himself more particularly to the working classes. He had long held the view that working people were the creatures of circumstance. He deployed their gross ferocity of character and one feels that, like Shaw, his chief reason for being a socialist was the desire that they should be abolished. But here there comes a twist in his thought, productive of large consequences. If the workers were creature of circumstance, so also the thought may have occurred to him while walking in the park after an unsatisfactory interview were Lord Sidmouth and the Archbishop. The thought was communicated in an address to the working classes in 1819. Quote, from infancy, you have been made to despise and hate those who differ from you in manners, language, and sentiments. Those feelings of anger must be withdrawn before any being who has your real interest at heart can place power in your hands. You will then distinctly perceive that no rational ground for anger exists. An endless multiplicity of circumstances over which you had not the smallest control place you where you are. In the same manner, others of your fellow men have been formed by circumstances equally uncontrollable by them to become your enemies and grievous oppressors. Splendid as their exterior may be, this state, of this state of matters often causes them to suffer even more poignantly than you. While you show by your conduct any desire violently to dispossess them of this power, 
these emoluments and privileges? Is it not evident that they must continue to regard you with jealous and hostile feelings? The rich and the poor, the governors and the governed, have really but one interest. But the thing, I mean, so to sort of move along, the reason Thompson writes so much about him is not because of Owen per se, but because of his followers and the way his writings and ideas are taken up by the working class, right? He sort of talks about the fact that they're so ambiguous in, and vacant when it comes to the political implications and sort of political theory of change that they can be taken up by different people in different ways, right? And sort of molded to diverse constituencies. Um, and so he talks about sort of the, there he emphasizes the quasi-religious element of Owenism, this sort of sense that there's going to be a sort of new man, you know, in this new society, right? There's, it's almost millenarian um, in its sort of even proclamations. I therefore now proclaim to the world the commencement on this day of the promised millennial, millennium founded on rational principles and consistent practice. Um, so I think, as he puts it on 789, if Cobbett's writings can be seen as a relationship with his readers, Owen's can be seen as ideological raw material diffused among working people and worked up by them into different products. And then he spends sort of the rest of the section talking about different ways that these ideas are taken up by his followers, right? Yeah, there's a great little thing at 786-787. Thompson writes, There comes through his writings not the least sense of the dialectical processes of social change, of revolutionizing practice. And he goes into a quote, The materialist doctrine that men are products of circumstances and upbringing, and that therefore changed men are products of other circumstances and changed upbringing, forgets that circumstances are changed precisely by men, and that the educator must himself be educated. Hence, this doctrine necessarily arrives at dividing society into two parts, of which one towers above society, in Robert Owen, for example. So ran Marx's third thesis on Ludwig Feuerbach. His social character was, as Owen held, the involuntary product of an endless multiplicity of circumstances. How was it to be changed? And this then leads to what his millenarianism, right? Because they sort of... Right, right. But also, as you're saying, the kind of openness to... Uh, the capture of his ideas by other people. Although it's worth saying, you know, there's this kind of cooperative tradition through the whole history of the British working class movement. I mean, like the Labour Party's official name today, I think, is the Labour and Cooperative Party. Um, and I remember when I lived in England for a year, um, like the my my nearby grocery store was like a like a co-op that was like part of a national co-op chain and like. You know, you could go and you could see all of the different co-ops associated. There's a whole cooperative thing in that country um, that we obviously have a tiny bit of here and not that much in the same way, though. And I do think that some of that history is owed to Owen and became politicized, you know, into the form of laborism. Right, right. It's great that on the final episode, we get uh, mentioned that you actually did live in England for a year, which I don't think I knew. Yeah. Hasn't, just hasn't come up, you know? Yeah, you know, it was mainly... It's not like uh, getting to know the country profoundly. <laughs> Again, I mean, uh, this is my tour guide to England. As a, That's how I'm going to use it, as Sheila Robotham told me to. <laughs> Just seeing if there's anything else that we need to say about Onism. All my various starred and quoted uh, passages. So this is 803. I underline lots of things. 
One feels that in the 1830s, many English people felt that the structure of industrial capitalism had only been partly built, and the roof not yet set upon the structure. Owenism was only one of the gigantic but ephemeral impulses which caught the enthusiasm of the masses, pre presenting the vision of a quite different structure which might be built in a matter of years or months if only people were united and determined enough. A spirit of combination has grown up, Brontero O'Brien wrote in 1833, whose object, and then he quotes O'Brien, um, is the sublimest that can be conceived, namely to establish for their productive classes a complete dominion over the fruits of their own industry, an entire change in society, a change amounting to a complete subversion of the existing order of the world, is contemplated by the working classes. They aspire to be at the top instead of the bottom of society, or rather that there should be no bottom or top at all. It is easy, writes Thompson, in retrospect, to see this spirit as naive or utopian, but there is nothing in it which entitles us to regard it with academic superiority. The poor were desperately poor, and the prospects of a community in which they might not only blend intellectual culture with the athletic pursuits of Greece and Rome, but also eat, were attractive. Moreover, there was this important difference between Owenism and earlier creeds, which gathered millenarial impetus. With the Owenites, the millennium was not to arrive, it was to be made by their own efforts. Um, and then he sort of con he concludes, and this is where we may gather all the lines of Owenism together. The artisans with their dreams of short-circuiting the market economy, the skilled workers with their thrust towards general unionism, the philanthropic gentry with their desire for a rational planned society, the poor with their dream of land or of Zion, the weavers with their hopes of self-employment, and all of these with their image of an equitable brotherly community in which mutual aid would replace aggression and competition. So I just thought it was a sort of useful uh, summing up that despite all the shortcomings of Owen himself and his thought, this is sort of the melding of different constituencies going on. Yeah, I mean, on, on the next page, on 806, um, it was because Owen refused to look squarely at either that at either the uh, ownership or class power, that he was able to remain quite indifferent to political radicalism and to lead the movement frequently up illusory paths. For years, the cooperative movement continued with this coexistence of philanthropists and working class radicals. By 1832, however, men like Hetherington, O'Brien, and James Watson had quite different emphases and were rejecting Owen's dismissal of all political means. Owenism for, was, for them, always a great and constructive influence. They had learned from it to see capitalism, not as a collection of discrete events, but as a system. They had learned to project an alternative utopian system of mutuality. They had passed beyond Cobbett's nostalgia for an older world and had acquired the confidence to plan the new. And then we get to the final section. Final section of the book. Titled, A Sort of Machine. So, I mean, first Thompson kind of defines the emergence of a class consciousness in this period as, on the one hand, a consciousness of the identity of interest between working men of the most diverse occupations and levels of attainment, which is embodied in many institutional forms. And then on the other hand, consciousness of the identity of interests of the working class or productive classes as against those of other classes. And within this, there was maturing the claim for an alternative system. The final definition of this class consciousness was, in large part, the consequence of the response to working class strength of the middle class. The line was drawn with extreme care in the franchise qualifications of 1832. It had been the peculiar feature of English development that where we would expect to find a growing middle class reform movement with a working class tail, 
only later succeeded by an independent agitation of the working class. In fact, this process was reversed. So this is a reversal of the kind of classic or standard account of the French Revolution. And sort of going on uh, at the very end of that page, you read, the 25 years after 1795 may be seen as the years of the, quote, long counter-revolution, and in consequence, the radical movement remained largely working class in character, with an advanced democratic populism as its theory. But the triumph of such a movement was scarcely to be welcomed by the mill owners, iron masters, and manufacturers, hence the peculiarly repressive and anti-egalitarian ideology of the English middle classes. Hence also the fact that the mildest measure of reform to meet the evident irrationalities of old corruption was actually delayed by the resistance of the old order on the one hand and the timidity of the manufacturers on the other. So basically, uh, over the course of the 1820s, you know, times economically are relatively good. Uh, you know, the kind of ideological world of the working class is on the one hand either like disseminated through print culture or, you know, kind of going down weird avenues through figures like Owen. And it's really at the beginning of the 1830s that things pop off again. Right. I mean, so he talks a lot about the Reform Bill, the Reform Bill of 1832. Right. Reform being uh, political reform, right, over franchise and representation. Mm -hmm. And how the lines were being drawn about who was going to actually be given the franchise. And basically the bill enfranchises the middle class is how it comes out. Uh, I mean, there's a big struggle over it, but the outcome ultimately is that it enfranchises the middle class. Um, as the poor man's guardian recorded its conclusion, the promoters of the reform bill, this is eight, uh, 812, the promoters of the reform bill projected it not with a view to subvert or even remodel our aristocratic institutions, but to consolidate them by a reinforcement of sub-aristocracy from the middle classes. The only difference between the Whigs and the Tories is this. The Whigs would give the shadow to preserve the substance. The Tories would not give the shadow, because stupid as they are, the millions will not stop at shadows, but proceed onward to realities. So by, you know, the, by 18, so the Reform Bill was passed in 1832. Um, and in this period, militant Owenites of the Rotunda, as Thompson describes them, represented, uh, you know, gathered influence very rapidly. They're able to have 70,000, 100,000 at their demonstrations. Um, the Duke of Wellington sees it as a contest between the establishment and the rotunda, which he describes as two armies en présence. Um, it confused his military mind very much, Thompson writes, to reflect that he could place no river between the armies, meaning the classes, uh, with adequate sentinels and posts on the bridges. The enemy was installed at sensitive points within his own camp. It's great. There's the, and then the sort of enemies of the rotundists. Uh, Thompson has this great line where he says, their danger lay in the fact that they might unleash the destructive energies of the criminal classes. Then there's another classic good list from Thompson at the bottom of 813. Here were the thousands of unpolitical but dangerous, quote, coster mongers, drovers, slaughterers of cattle, knackers, dealers in dead bodies and dogs meat, cads, brickmakers, chimney sweepers, nightmen, scavengers, etc. The best ones here, in my opinion, are dealers in dead bodies and cads. Yeah, <laughs> both really good. As well as loose single men living here and there in lodgings. Sure, classic category. And basically, at least the way Thompson paints it is, by 1831, we're talking about in the days of May, as the term goes, uh, he says, Britain was within an ace of a revolution, which once commenced might well, if we consider the simultaneous advance in cooperative and trade union theory, have prefigured in its rapid radicalization the revolutions of 1848 and the Paris Commune, 
Going down a little bit, he says the fact that revolution did not occur was due in part to the deep constitutionalism of that part of the radical tradition, of which Cobbett, urging the acceptance of half a loaf, was the spokesman, and in part to the skill of the middle-class radicals in offering exactly that compromise which might not weaken but strengthen both the state and property rights against the working class threat. So there's a sort of peeling off of the middle class from any possible coalition. Yeah, and I mean, there is an 1830 revolution in Paris, right? It's not like... It's not like an unreasonable idea that it could happen in England, too. And as uh, someone is writing in, I think it's Bronte O'Brien, is writing in uh, The Poor Man's Guardian on 821, he says, We foresaw, he wrote of the Reform Bill, that its effect would be to detach from the working classes a large portion of the middle ranks, who were then more inclined to act with the people than with the aristocracy that excluded them. Of all governments, a government of the middle classes is the most grinding and remorseless. <laughs> I think this is still O'Brien writing on 822. Thompson writes, A refugee from a middle-class culture himself, he took a special pleasure in writing of his own class in terms which imitated its own drawing-room small talk about the servant classes. Quote, Their pursuits and habits of the middle classes are essentially debasing. Their life is necessarily a life of low cunning and speculation. <laughs> Just reminded me of how harsh every, like, the PMC debates and all these things. Like, every middle class person is like, oh, the middle class. My God, you wouldn't want to be around them. Awful people. We can't talk about that, Alex. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, we're, we're almost two hours into the episode, so anyone listening, obviously, <laughs> uh, has played themselves if they were only listening to hear that. <laughs> I mean, joking aside, you know, um, been a period of such profound social flux, right? That uh, to the extent that a class is constituted in significant part by its by sets of political loyalties, right, and political shared political identity, and so on, um, right, one gets the sense here that uh, I, I mean, middle class is being used very broad in a very broad sense here because it describes like factory owners, right? Because they're not aristocrats. Mm-hmm. Um, right, but that there are segments of the middle class that might have ended up, um, you know, politically and organizationally aligned differently than they did, right? Um, and that who is constituted in in the category that emerges in this period of working class, um, you know, it's I mean Thompson's whole point, right? Is it's not fixed in advance, but it's determined through this political process. Sure, though, yeah, I mean to your point as far as how middle class is being used. Middle class in in England is used quite differently than how Americans use middle class. I mean, well, I mean, I think it encompasses how Americans use middle class, but it but it also encompasses, um, I mean, anyone who is not like a member the of aristocracy, the aristocracy, basically. right? Which yeah. could be a very wealthy person, right? Right. But I think at its bottom end, right, it does also include like uh, rich artisans, basically, right, sure. who are not so far socially from. I mean, relatively rich artisans, not so far socially from characters here. It's funny, he doesn't really, he doesn't give a whole character sketch about um, Brontero O'Brien, but he seems like a really interesting character. Yeah. Great name, too. Yeah, also just a great name. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I wanted to learn more about the editor of The Poor Man's Guardian, uh, who seemed to have, like, somewhat comic writings at times. Uh, he talks about, on 821... He's writing um, of how he was sent to London to study law and radical reform. And uh, there's a block quote from him from 1837. 
He writes, my friend sent me to study law. I took to radical reform on my own account. While I've made no progress at all in law, I've made immense progress in radical reform. So much so that were a professorship of radical reform to be instituted tomorrow in King's College, no very probable event, by the way, I think I would stand candidate. I feel as though every drop of blood in my veins has was radical blood. He seems great. <laughs> so he's sort of, in wrapping up, he says, two themes may only be mentioned of those which arose again and again in these years. This is the bottom of 828. The first is that of internationalism. This was, to be sure, part of the old Jackman heritage and one which the radicals had never forgotten. When Oliver tramped with the Leeds cropper James Mann and another revolutionary to the rendezvous at Thornhill Lees in 1817, he found from their discourse that the recent news from the Brazils seemed to cheer them with greater hopes than ever. Cobbett could always find time to add a stop press to his journals. Quote from Cobbett, I have just room to tell you that the people of Belgium, the common people, have beaten the Dutch armies who were marched against them to compel them to pay enormous taxes. This is excellent news. The French Revolution of 1830 had a profound impact upon the people, electrifying not only the London radicals, but working-class reformers in distant industrial villages. And he goes on and on, giving examples of this. He ends this paragraph, By the end of the same year, the question of some common alliance between the trade unionists of England, France, and Germany had already come under discussion. The other theme was that of industrial syndicalism. When Marx was still in his teens, the battle for the minds of English trade unionists between a capitalist and a socialist political economy had been at least temporarily won. The winners were Hodgkin, Thompson, James o Morrison, and O'Brien. The losers were James Mill and Place. What is capital? asked a writer in The Pioneer. It is reserved labor, cries McCullough. From whom and what was it reserved? From the clothing and food of the wretched. Hence the workers who had been insolently placed without the pale of social government developed stage by stage a theory of syndicalism or of inverted masonry. The trades unions will not only strike for less work and more wages, wrote a member of the builders' unions, but they will ultimately abolish wages, become their own masters, and work for each other. Labor and capital will no longer be separate, but they will be indissolubly joined together in the hands of the workmen and workwomen. Yeah, I mean... Uh... Just continuing from there, um, I think a remarkable passage on 8.30. The unions themselves could solve the problem of political power. A parliament of the industrious classes could be formed, delegated directly from workshops and mills. The lodges send delegates from local to district and from district to national assemblies. Here are universal suffrage, annual election, and no property qualification in Stanter. The idea was developed in the pioneer of such a house of trades. Which must, supply, quote, which must supply the place of the present House of Commons and direct the commercial affairs of the country according to the will of the trades, which compose associations of the industry. This is the ascendancy scale by which we arrive to universal suffrage. It will begin in our lodges, extend to our general union, embrace the management of trade, and finally swallow up the whole political power. I mean, this is like, uh, I mean, Soviets, right? I mean, it's, he calls it syndicalism, Thompson does, and not... You know, it, it, it does have that character. These years reveal a passing beyond the characteristic outlook of the artisan, which has defined this whole book, right? Uh, with his desire for an independent livelihood by the sweat of his brow to a newer outlook, more reconciled to the new means of production, but seeking to exert the collective power of the class to humanize the environment. By this community or that cooperative society, by this check on the blind operation of the market economy, this legal enactment, that measure of relief for the poor, and implicit, if not always explicit in their outlook, 
was a dangerous tenet. Production must be not for profit, but for use. This collective self-consciousness was indeed the great spiritual gain. <laughs> Are we just going to read the last three pages of the book? Of the Industrial Revolution. <laughs> The last page, I mean, you know, it's a very long chapter, and you know, you're all, you know, sometimes you're like, do we need all these pages on like all of these newspapers? But the last couple of pages, I think, are very, are very profound. Sorry, go on. <laughs> no, no, I'm not going to just read them. You're right. <laughs> you can. I mean, it's our podcast. Well, okay, I'll try to summarize. So basically, um, you know, he says that the working class has been enriched by these experiences of the 17th and 18th centuries, the intellectual and libertarian traditions which we have described. Uh, therefore, these men did not pass in one generation from the peasantry to the new industrial town. They suffered the experience of the Industrial Revolution as articulate, freeborn Englishmen. Those who were sent to jail might know the Bible better than those on the bench. And those who were transported to Van Diemen's Land might ask their relatives to send Cobbett's Register after them. This was perhaps the most distinguished popular culture England has known. He was on to say, it's easy enough to say this culture is back, backward looking or conservative. So we're back at this sort of ambivalence um, of this moment. True enough, one direction of the great agitations of the artisans and outworkers continued over 50 years was to resist being turned into a proletariat. When they knew that this cause was lost, yet they reached out again in the 30s and 40s and sought to achieve new and only imagined forms of social control. During all this time, they were as a class repressed and segregated in their own communities, but what the counter-revolution sought to repress grew only more determined in the quasi-legal institutions of the underground. Whenever the pressure of the rulers relaxed, men came from the petty workshops or the weavers' hamlets and asserted new claims. They were told that they had no rights, but they knew that they were born free. Mm. A little chill. <laughs> <laughs> and just for you, Gabe, I'll finish out the paragraph because it ends well. The yeomanry rode down their meeting, and the right of public meeting was gained. The pamphleteers were jailed, and from the jails they edited pamphlets. The trade unionists were imprisoned, and they were attended to prison by processions with bands and union banners. He goes on on the last page to say, If we have in our social life little of the tradition of egalité, yet the class consciousness of the working man has little in it of deference. Orphans we are and bastards of society, wrote James Morrison in 1834. The tone is not one of resignation, but of pride. Well, fun fact, this is what Gabe wanted to call the podcast. I did want to call the podcast Bastards, Bastards of Society. <laughs> I told him it sounded like a bad band. It does. I, I, I think you were right about that. Good judgment. <laughs> so, okay, so we're done the book. What, have you, what has the book made you think differently, if anything? Or made you think it's new for you? You have to answer it first, Gabe. I mean... You know the primacy of organization and activity. Well, I think that's that's the thing that I've taken away most profoundly from from this reading of it. Um, as I was as I, as we were doing this, I was finishing my own book, which I won't talk about at any length. But um, you know, I realized how many times in the writing of my own book uh, there were little episodes of worker struggle that I sort of took note of in some way, but didn't make much of or even edited out because they didn't amount to anything. Um, uh, you know, six people go on strike for a day randomly, like that kind of thing, right? Um, that I come across in, in the archive in one form or another. Um, and you know, I found myself as we were doing this, going back and putting those kinds of things back in, or getting something different from them, or emphasizing them differently, um, because of the way in which Thompson really leaves you feeling that. 
you know, fa- obviously failed or hopeless or small scale uh, forms of activity and attempted organization um, accrete. And, you know, it's not the right way to evaluate them historically. Uh, what, you know, that they, <laughs> if they didn't succeed, you shouldn't pay attention to them. Or if they never, if they were tiny, you shouldn't pay attention to them even. Right. I'm sure that thrilled your uh, editors. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you just told them, well, look, if you just listen to this podcast and read this book. The episodes know, are only four hours long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is the thing. He ends the book with, uh, in the failure of the two traditions to come to a point of juncture, something was lost. How much we cannot be sure for we can are among the losers, right? So I think you're right about this sort of longer scale of understanding how these things soak in over time. I think is an important lesson. I mean, also, I just I appreciated the meticulous attention to, like, you know, for example, I kept making jokes throughout this of, like, why are the shoemakers always on the front lines of these movements and things? And so just, like, this actual meticulous materialist analysis of how people's relations to their own, to their own labor and to the boss can make a big difference in this i mean things i already knew to some degree but it was i mean to see it in a era that i knew almost nothing about actually it was like an eye-opening lesson because i couldn't take anything for granted as far as how people related to the community around them yeah it also makes me feel like i mean i uh i moved recently i'm currently not doing that much politically which i you know am anxious to change again soon um but it makes me feel like uh, it both raises and lowers my standards for myself in terms of how to think about my own political activity, which is to say, like, um, you know, it makes disengagement even relatively briefly feel kind of intolerable on the one hand, because mm-hmm. you, you encounter all these figures who just spend their whole lives just at it, you know, mm-hmm. um, in and out of jail and whatever. Um, on the other hand, also, it makes me feel like you know, I often feel, and I don't think this is exactly a wrong feeling, but I, I'm now ambivalent about it. Uh, I often feel like I'm doing political activity that I don't really f- see the point of, right? What is it amounting to? It's not like we're building a campaign. It's not, you know, it's not advancing year over year, month over month or year over year in any clear way. Like what? Can you uh, give an example? Well, like, you know, I mean, my last couple of years in DSA in Boston, which is no knock on anyone but myself, but I feel like I didn't, I didn't manage to find how to plug myself into, mm-hmm. uh, into that in a way that felt like I was uh, accumulating or contributing to any collective accumulation of uh, power sure. or capacity or anything. Um, and, you know, I, I think that's worth taking seriously. And obviously it's better to have, to contribute to real strategic and, you know, organized efforts but also this book kind of leaves me feeling like um you know there's like a lot of different ways of doing your part uh there's ways of doing your part that feel kind of useless like like often for example political education like i understand the value of it in principle but like you do it you participate in it you get yourself educated you help educate other people whatever and it's a little bit like what does this amount to you know um Mm -hmm. right as opposed to you know getting someone to sign a union card or something um and I don't know, this book makes me, like, left this time left me feeling like, uh, you know, it amount, it, it doesn't amount to anything visibly necessarily, but that it, it, it doesn't make it um, insubstantial. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, seeing the actual power, again, just I'm always arguing against myself anyway. So seeing the actual power that even these publishers and whatnot had, obviously, has made me think more about, I mean, I have this conversation with people a lot of sort of what are the obligations in this moment towards if you have some sort of like platform or if you work in media and things, does it actually make a difference? And often I think it's, you know, this book sort of forces me to take it a little more seriously. You hear from people all the time who read, <laughs> I know, who I know. read something you wrote. I know. Then we can have this and... conversation some other time. No, we, no, no, we have to have it on air. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> that has to mean something. Yes, you're right, of course. <laughs> In conclusion, <laughs> this has been great. Thank you for doing this with me, Gabe. This was fun. Yeah, likewise. Thank you, everyone, for listening. The uh, approximately, I I find it hard to believe there will be more than eleven people total that make it two hours into this episode. <laughs> so for you, eleven, thank you so much. <laughs> Any final thing to say, Gabe? I, don't, I mean, I don't think so. No, me neither. I think that was it. Uh, all right. Well, well done, everyone. Thanks for listening to Casualties of History, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. Thanks to our producer, Sarah Hurd, and to Joey La Neve de Francesco for the music. You can find us at Blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y.com backslash J-A-C-O-B-I-N. Or at Patreon.com backslash Casualties of History. 